No matter if the economy is up or down, healthcare careers continue to grow, especially in management. Stevenson University Online's Master's in Healthcare Management can put your career on a new track, especially for career changers with previous business, HR, or technology backgrounds. Discover new opportunities with our Healthcare Management Master's. No GREs, no application fees, and 100% online. Visit online.stevenson.edu slash healthcare management. Yeah, it's called Conversations with Jeff, not Screaming Matches. Yeah, yeah I, 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 you and I do not agree on Calvinism. But look how nice we are to each other. I think it's going to really shock a lot of people, thrill a lot of people. A lot of people are going to have to do some soul searching. It's like, you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. When you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Right. Thank you for the job you're doing. Thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues. They're vital to the church. I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's it's a good, healthy conversation, and, and let's keep growing together in the Lord. People won't change unless they hear the truth, though. And so we need to know the truth, uh, speak the truth. And then the last one I would say is that we need to stay in the truth, uh, no matter what the consequences are. Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode of Conversations with Jeff. Uh, before we get started, just wanted to remind everybody, we do have our book that we're uh, right now in pre-order uh, with called Church and State, How the Left Used the Church to Conquer America. we got a bunch of uh, awesome contributing authors to that book project, uh, including uh, Pastor Greg Locke, Dr. Michael Brown, um, Pastor Carrie Gordon, uh, Denise McAllister, just a bunch of great uh, conservative Christian voices that's all contributing to this book. If you guys are interested in that, want more information on that, uh, you guys can go over to gatekeepersonline.com slash church and state. Use the code Jeff at checkout for 10% off. Uh, and again, that's Church and State, How the Left Used the Church to Conquer America. It's a, it's a fascinating book. It'll be released in the next couple of weeks, but right now we are in pre-order, so definitely check that out. Um, I am happy to introduce our guest uh, for today for Conversations with Jeff. We've got Rachel Bruno joining us. Uh, she's a speaker, author, but she's also got a, you know, a really important story that I think that uh, we all need to be aware of. But Rachel, thanks so much for joining me. and glad we can sit down and chat for a little bit. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> of course, and you know, and and you know, you your story is is really interesting and really relevant today. But dealing specifically with uh, child protective services and things like that, I know uh, one of the other um, podcasts on on this network, uh, the Shiny Light Podcast, they've been dealing a lot with. Um, uh, like dealing with adoption laws and things like that in, um, in Iowa. And so I know a lot of people on, you know, that listen to our shows are kind of beginning to be aware of the ins and outs of things that are going on. But what, before we, you know, really dive into a lot of that, can you share, uh, your story, uh, just that way people can kind of get an understanding of where you're coming from with all this? Absolutely. So, you know, CPS is kind of the starting point. Like you said, you know, my encounter with CPS started in July of 2015. And both my children, basically, both my children were seized by CPS because my infant son was injured while in the care of his nanny. 
So just a little background on myself. I have epilepsy, I have seizures, and one of the main triggers to my seizures are sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. So if you've ever had a newborn, you know you ain't sleeping. <laughs> and that was my doctor's recommendation that I get somebody to at least watch the baby at night while I sleep so that I can get my full eight hours of sleep. So I had the nanny, you know, I interviewed her. She was a volunteer at a church. She had children herself. Her husband was a Marine. So no real red flags. You know, we hired her. She started watching him when he was around seven days old. Her shift was from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. Everything was going very smoothly until about seven weeks old. When he was seven weeks old, I woke up to him screaming at about four o'clock in the morning. And he was screaming, crying, and I looked at the clock, four o'clock in the morning, probably diaper feeding, you know, something to that extent. He stopped crying, and then a few minutes go by, he starts crying again. Then he stops, then he starts again. You know, this goes on for a few minutes, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm awake, might as well get up. I go over to the bedroom, and she has him swaddled inside the crib, and was kind of like going like this, and, sh you know, shushing him, trying to calm him down. He was not having it, and it just kept screaming. So she picked him up, put him like in the burp position. And at this point, he stopped screaming, but still really uncomfortable, making weird faces. You know, and I asked her, like, something happened? No matter if the economy is up or down, healthcare careers continue to grow, especially in management. Stevenson University Online's Master's in Healthcare Management can put your career on a new track, especially for career changers with previous business, HR, or technology backgrounds. Discover new opportunities with our Healthcare Management Masters. No GREs, no application fees, and 100% online. Visit online.stevenson.edu slash healthcare management. Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Happy Holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. She showed me the empty bottle. She's like, I just fed him. He's very gassy. I said, okay, you know, fair enough. Babies get gassy. At this point, I'm home alone. My husband is on a business trip in West Virginia. I have my 20-month-old son who's sleeping directly across the hall. And I have the screaming seven-week-old baby. So I tell her, you know, I'm, he's obviously not settling down. I'm already awake. So, you know, why don't you just go home and I'll take it from here. So she went home. I took my son into the bedroom with me. I unswaddled him, looked for any rashes, fever, anything leaking from his ears, you know, fluid, anything I could think of. Nothing, nothing seemed to be wrong in that aspect. So I gave him skin to skin and he fell asleep on me. I'm like, okay, you know, you just wanted your mommy. And I must have dozed off about 7 a.m. I wake up to the same scream again. I'm like, okay, okay, you're hungry, right? Last feeding four, seven, try to feed him. He would not latch, like he would not do it. He just had his mouth wide open and just was not interested. And kind of weird, you know, for a newborn. But again, I was kind of jaded, you know, colic, nursing strike, gassiness. Maybe he just doesn't want it right now. I swaddle him again, put him over here. Then my 20-month-old wakes up, so I go get him. I go put the baby to sleep or to lay down. And when as soon as I put him down, he just starts screaming again, like screaming. I'm like, okay, go back, pick him up. Stop screaming. I'm thinking, okay, do you just want to be held? You know, so I'm just holding him, get my 20-month-old son, get our routine going. Long story short, six hours later, nonstop crying, 
couldn't put him down, no napping, no eating. I make, I call my mom. I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with him. Something's wrong with him. Can you please come over here to stay with my older son, David at the time so that I could take Lucas to the doctor. So she comes over. I call the pediatrician. We can't see him till three o'clock this afternoon. Like he's been screaming since four o'clock this morning. I need to see somebody like, okay, then take him to the emergency room. So hop in the car with my mom, my older son, David, Lucas. And of course, as soon as you get in the car, baby falls asleep, right? And I'm thinking, okay, great. Going to show up to the emergency room, this overreactive mom here at the emergency room. But we get there. I tell the, the doctor the symptoms and the nurse, you know, comes in first, of course, and checks all his vitals. Everything seems okay. He seems like he's sleeping to me. At that point, he's asleep. No crying, no more noise, no nothing. The nurse does immediately take me into the back room. The pediatrician comes and asks me what's going on. I tell him. He tells me to lay him down on the bed, and then he walks away. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, probably going to go get some Benadryl or something and tell me to go home. But he stops right at the door, about 10 feet away from my son, and he is just laser-focused on that bed, like just staring at my son. There's people in the room. Everybody's silent. Like, this is weird. And he's looking, and then he starts walking towards the bed. He goes to my son right behind his left ear. He says, did you feel this? I said, no. So he grabs my hand. He makes me touch it. Like, you feel that? I said, yeah. He's like, that's fluid. That's leaking from his brain. It's like a little bulge there. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? It could be spinal cerebral fluid. It can be blood. We need to go do CT scan right now. And as soon as he says that, like 10 people rush into that room. They're putting tubes in my son. They're putting those sticker things on his chest. They are just going crazy. And I'm just staring at my mom like, what the heck is going on? They raise up the rails. I'm holding the baby. And they just bolt down the hallway into that CT room. And as we're going down the CT room, his right arm starts twitching. And then the nurses really start running. And then that's kind of where it hits me the first time. I'm like, oh my gosh, left side of the brain, right arm twitching. He's having a seizure. Like, I have seizures. I'm like, oh my God, I passed this on to my son. Right, that was my first thought. And I say a little prayer for my son. I said, God, please spare my son from having to live with this like I have for my entire life. Get to the CT room. They take him from me, hook him up. A few minutes go by. Doctor is Miss Bruno. Yeah. Come here. They take me into the back room where all the computer screens are. And the doctor says, this is very serious. I'm like, okay. It's like the fluid that's leaking is blood. The, the brain hates blood. And it was a cranial fracture, intracerebral blood hemorrhage. We need to go do emergency surgery right now. And they're giving me all the liability forms. Like, are you against blood transfusions? Like, I don't care what you have to do. Save my son. Save my son. So off they go, wheeling off my seven-week-old son into brain surgery. Right? And I'm there with my mom. I'm still in shock. I'm like, what just happened? I went from gassy baby to now my son is in brain surgery. My husband at this point is in West Virginia, right on a business trip, not knowing what's going on. I'm texting him. My mom is there, my 20-month-old son bouncing off the walls, and we're just texting our family, texting our friends. Everybody just pray. I don't know what happened. He's in surgery. Just pray. Four hours later, surgeon comes out and calls me, said, Miss Bruno, everything went well as far as clinically is concerned. We were able to drain all the blood. We were able to fix the fracture. He did require three bags of blood transfusion. And I'm like, is he okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? The doctor said, you know, due to his young age, we really don't know. He's in a medically induced coma right now because he started having frequent seizures after the surgery. 
So we honestly don't know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours. So again, I'm just in shock. Like it's been, you know, one thing after another, after another, after another. I go into the PICU with him and he's just there, head wrapped around in gauze, has tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine, the machines beeping, and I just stare at my son, seemingly lifeless son. Again, say a little prayer, say, God, you know, I don't care if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son, I will. Just don't take him away from me. And if you're a Christian, you know that little voice of the Holy Spirit that told me right then and there, he's mine. He's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. I felt peace at that moment, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And I said, okay, God, you're right. He is yours. No better place for him to be than in your hands. So he's in your hands. I go talk to my mom. You know, from that point, I switched to logistics mode. Like, what's going to happen with my younger son or my older son, 20, 20 months old at the time? My husband is out of town, so call my friend, take my mom and my son to her house. He's going to be spending the night at grandma's house, and I stay there at the hospital. And about an hour after my mom leaves, I see a man in uniform and a woman with a clipboard knock on the, the hospital door. Say, Ms. Bruno, can we speak to you? Okay, no weird. What's the... Uh, Looked like a police ranger, like his uniform was brown, something I didn't recognize. And yeah, sure. First thing that he says, what happened to your son was worse than getting shot in the head by a bullet. Like, will you help us? We want to help you figure out how this happened to your son. Will you help us? So at this point, I'm like, of course. You know, and if they're asking me for help, they obviously don't think it's me. Like, I didn't do this. So I sit down with them, tell them the whole saga from 4 o'clock in the morning police officer, why didn't you call 911? Because I didn't know what was going on with my son. You know, she told me he was gassy. Why did you wait so long to bring him to the hospital? Like, again, I didn't know what was wrong. I thought he was gassy. Why did you bring him to hospital in Orange County when you live in LA County? Because this is the children's hospital that I know. And he's just meticulously dot jotting things down. The social worker asked me, do you have any other children? But I do. Like, where are they? How old? So I give her the information. Is it okay if we go see him? Now, at this point, it's probably about 9 o'clock at night. I'm saying he's probably asleep by now. She said, we're not going to wake him. We just want to make sure he's okay. Again, at this point, I think, you know, I have nothing to hide. So, yeah, go ahead. She leaves the hospital at that point. The police officer stays with me, asks me if I'm willing to wait for the detectives, that the detectives are on their way to the hospital. I said, okay, sure, of course. My husband comes straight from the airport to the hospital, and once he arrives at the hospital, the police officer takes him aside, puts me in another room to wait for the detectives, and takes my husband to another room and talks to my husband. So in hindsight, we could kind of see what's going on, but at that moment, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. He puts me in the other room, closes the door. The detectives don't show up till probably close to midnight, and they interrogate me till about 2 o'clock in the morning. And mind you, I'd been up since 4 o'clock, so almost 24 hours. And I tell them, you know, I really need to get some sleep. I don't want to have a seizure now. <laughs> so, you know, I'm more than willing to continue this later, later on today. So I go to bed, wake up at about 10 o'clock. And when I wake up, my husband is just staring at me, like this blank stare on his face. My first instinct, you know, look at the bed. My baby is there. He's alive. What's going on? He says, they took David. I'm like, what do you mean they took David? Who? Where? How? 
Like they showed up at your mom's house at two o'clock in the morning with the police officers and the social worker and they took David. And I mean, it was like a knife going through my, my heart. I'm like, they lied to me. Like what? She told me they were going to see if he was okay. She, what? You know, so I call my mom and then my poor mom, I'm like what happened? She's like, they showed up with the police officer. They walked inside the house. They looked at our, our refrigerators, you know, looked around the house, said everything was okay. She goes into David's room, turns on the light. David wakes up and she says, we're going to take him. My mom's like, no, you're not. And she said, if you don't give him to us, you're going to be arrested. No matter if the economy is up or down, healthcare careers continue to grow, especially in management. Stevenson University Online's Master's in Healthcare Management can put your career on a new track, especially for career changers with previous business, HR, or technology backgrounds. Discover new opportunities with our Healthcare Management Master's. No GREs, no application fees, and 100% online. Visit online.stevenson.edu slash healthcare management. Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Happy Holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. And the police officers are standing right there, not saying anything. My mom looks at them, you know, for anybody to give us some sort of explanation. And she's like, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? And the social worker, no, he's going to go to foster care. And you're not going to be able to care for him because you're going to have a criminal record. So it's 2 o'clock in the morning. My dad is in the garage calling lawyers. My mom is trying to minimize the situation. My husband is on the phone. And at that time, I'm asleep at the hospital. And my husband is trying to get the social worker to not do it. She's like, we're calling for backup. More police officers show up. And at that point, my mom is just, you know, here. Take him and puts him in the car. And they drive off in the middle of the night. Now it's 10 o'clock in the morning. The social worker is not answering her phone. The supervisor is not answering her phone. We don't know where my son is. And here we are. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? I call, I start calling lawyers. Took me about 10 lawyers until I finally got one that was willing to take my call and talk to me. I go to his office that day and I'm, I'm in shock. I'm in, I go in there. I'm like laughing. I'm like, okay, this is some sort of mistake, right? Some sort of miscommunication. Where's my son and where the heck can I go get him? And he tells me, sit down, sit down. Like what's going on? He's like, you have no idea what you're in for. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, they can't just take your son. Yeah, they can. Like, no, they can't. Like, what? I didn't do this. Like, what about what happened to our Constitution? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What What about the nanny? What are we? I'm asking all these questions. He's like, listen to me. This is family court. What you're facing, what happened to your son is criminal. You are facing 15 years in jail, a $100,000 bail if they decide to charge you. I didn't do this. 
I believe you. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Where, where's my son? Like, I know where he is. He has it on speed dial. Calls the, the county shelter. And he's like, yeah, my client is so-and-so. Is the son so-and-so there? Like, yeah, he's here. Like, okay, hang up. So back to business with me. Like, I'm not even going to fight for you. You know, if I go into that courtroom and I tell them to give the kids back to you, social services is going to tell the judge that you have a criminal investigation open against you. Even though there's nothing proven, even though there's nothing there, that's what they're going to tell the judge. They're going to say that if the judge gives the children back to you, they're going to be placing the children in, in danger. So, no. Like, if your children are two years old, nonverbal, they can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. And they will make it last longer than six months. And I'm like, adopted? What do you mean adopted? For what? Like, yeah, they can be adopted. I didn't do this. What What is going on? He's like, it doesn't matter. Like, I believe you. It doesn't matter. Your saving grace is that your husband was out of town when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. We're going to ask the judge to give sole custody to your husband. That way they don't even risk going into foster care. And if the judge grants that, they're going to kick you out of the house. So at this point, you know, what choice did I have? Like risk going into that courtroom and fighting for my rights or, you know, and having my children placed with strangers to be adopted out or have them with their father and me, you know, getting kicked out of the house and maybe not having any visitation with my children. So we went into the courtroom three days later. They have what they call a 72 hour emergency hearing. And I'm still thinking, you know, this is not going to happen. You know, we're praying. We're like, God, this is not going to happen. The judge is going to see the ridiculousness of this. You know, there's no way this is going to happen. Like, what country are we living in? You know, this is the United States of America. There's no way this is going to happen. Walk into that courtroom, and I'm thinking it's going to be, you know, Judge Judy at least. One side says something. The other side says something. You know, and you go back and forth. And I go in there. The nanny isn't there. The police officer isn't there. The social worker isn't there. Only people there are me, my husband, my mom and my dad in the jury box, and a bunch of lawyers. So, you know, the hearing starts. They start with all their legalese, and I'm just thinking, okay, when is it my turn? When is the judge going to ask me something? Never said one word in that courtroom. Only thing I ever got asked was when my attorney said, Your Honor, we would like the children placed in custody of the father. The judge goes around. Anybody object? Your attorney object, this attorney object, no, 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 nobody objects except for social services. Social services objected. And the judge is like, why? Because we never got to speak to the father. So we don't know whether he's a fit father or not. So at that point, court goes into recess. And I'm like, oh, my God, are you serious? Right? Is this? No. <laughs> so, you know, me and my husband are outside in the hallway. Our attorneys are in there arguing. I don't know what the heck they were doing. We're just praying. We're praying and we go back in and the by the grace of God, the judge overruled. He said children will go to their father. Mrs. Bruno, you have 24 hours to vacate your home. A caseworker will be calling you regarding visitation. Court is adjourned. So within 15 minutes, you know, my whole life was turned upside down. Both my children were now custody of the state basically. I was court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, and individual counseling. 
I was given seven hours of monitored visitation a week with both my sons. And I had nowhere to live. Right? I asked my attorney, where am I supposed to go? Like, well, you know, the hospital is a monitored facility. So as long as your son is in the hospital, you can stay at the hospital. So that became my sleeping place, was at the hospital with my son. I went home, cleaned out all my stuff. My attorney is like, you don't leave one toothbrush, not one trace of yourself in that house. Everything out. I mean, I must have donated half my wardrobe. My neighbor, you know, at the time, my next door neighbor, let me put all my boxes in his house. And we really had no idea when this was going to be over. I go to the hospital. My mom at the time asked my pastor to go pray for me and pray for my son. And he was out of the country. He was in Cambridge at the time. So his wife came. She came to the hospital. She prayed for my son. And then she looked at me. She said, I've been praying. And God told me you're coming home with me. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> thank you. You know, we knew each other. Hi, bye from church. You know, we don't really consider ourselves intimate friends. But she basically invited a stranger into her house. And I couldn't have asked for a better friend at that point in my life. I mean, somebody to cry with me, to laugh with me, to pray with me. And 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long I was kicked out of the house. I had the seven hours of monitor visitation with my sons. On the 40th day, we had a hearing. And my attorney calls me. He's like, don't bother coming to court today. The status of your investigation hasn't changed. The criminal investigation is still open. Don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. I tell my husband. My husband's like, I don't care what he says. We're gone. So we go to the courthouse. And about an hour later, he calls me. Where are you? I'm at the courthouse. He's like, okay, I'm on my way. Might be able to do something today. Then hangs up on me. Again, back to texting. Everybody start praying. I don't know what's going on. Something's going to happen. Everybody starts praying. He walks into the courtroom. I go hug him. He pushes me away. He's like, don't hug me. I can't make you any promises. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he goes into the court, the room, comes back with the reports, sign this, goes back in, initial this, sign this. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm signing. I'm just trusting God and my attorney at that point. About three hours later, comes back with a huge stack of papers. It's like, okay, if you're willing to sign this the way it's written today, there's nothing in here saying that you did this. There's nothing in here admitting guilt. This is just the social worker's narrative, the police reports, the medical investigations, all your, all the stuff, all the paperwork associated with the case. They are willing to let you go home today. So at that point, you know, if they told me to cut off my leg, I would have done it. And I just wanted to be home. My son at this point was, what, eight weeks old, you know, my newborn son. And my 20-month-old son, my toddler, who's just now learning to speak and, you know, all these milestones that I was missing. So I signed the paper and he told me, he's like, I've been doing this for 23 years and I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. But you definitely have a higher power working for you. Yes, I do. Amen. <laughs> so I went home that day and I was still court ordered to take the, all the services, what they call services. So the child abuse classes, the parenting classes, the individual counseling. But I was home with my children and we were put on what they call family maintenance where for six months, a social worker comes to your house every month unannounced and they write a report. And at the end of the six months, it was the social worker's recommendation that our case be closed. But basically what it was about eight months of us living under a microscope. Right. And me in those child abuse classes at first, I'm like, what the heck am I going to do in a child abuse class? Thinking I'm going to be in there with a bunch of drug addicts, you know, tattooed domestic violence 
people, you know, my own biases. And when I get there, everybody's in the same boat that I am. Like nobody had intentionally abused their child. I'm hearing all these different stories. I mean, there was an 18 year old kid who dropped his daughter while giving her a bath, slipped in the bathtub, baby fell, her arm on the side of the bathtub. He took the baby to the emergency room. He explained to the doctors what happened. And because the baby's arm was fractured in more than one place, it was child abuse. So they took away the child, the baby, and he's 18 years old, of course, can't afford an attorney, gets a public defender. Public defender tells him the same thing. You're facing 15 years in jail, $100,000 bail. So, you know, why don't you, we just go in there, you tell the judge you're sorry, that it won't happen again, and you do two years instead of 15. And that's what he did. So here you have an 18-year-old who goes to jail for two years for an accident, right? And he gets out of jail. He has a criminal record, can't find a job. So now, of course, social services is using that against him. How's he going to support a child? And they're keeping his child away from him. Other cases, 15-year-old was posting naked pictures of herself on Instagram. The father takes away the phone. The father takes away the car. The father grounds her. One night, he's on his graveyard shift, scrolling through his phone, and he sees naked pictures of his daughter on her friend's account. So he goes home, and he spanks her. He's like, I don't know what to do with you anymore. You are not allowed to do this. So he spanks her. She calls the police, says that her dad hit her. The police come, take all the four children, all removed from the home. The father goes to jail, and she's out there in the middle of nowhere doing whatever it is that she was doing right so I'm, I'm seeing all these stories and I'm like what why like why would this agency do this right this agency that is purported to help families or to protect children then I start googling right start reading start doing some research and it, I remember it hit me then that before I even had a hearing my mom was asked to adopt both my sons so before I even stepped foot in that courtroom, before any investigation was done, before anything, they asked my mom, will you adopt your grandchildren? My mom's like, no, give them back to their parents, to whom they belong. And the social worker, well, we don't know what the judge is going to order at the hearing. So if the judge orders the removal of the children, will you be willing to adopt them? My mom's like, okay, what happens if I don't? They're going to go to foster care. And my mom's like, okay. I will adopt them, and then the social worker is great. Sign these papers. You're going to get $670 a month per child. They will be eligible for food stamps. They will be eligible for Medi-Cal. They will be eligible for this. They'll do this. They'll do My mom's like, I don't want your money. And the social worker, well, this is how we help the families. This is how we help you. My mom is like, can I save the checks for the lawyers? And the social worker is like, I'll pretend I didn't hear that. So, you know, that was in the back of my mind. I'm like, huh. Like, why would they offer my mom adoption before there was even ever any evidence, any investigation, any trial, anything? So I start researching, and there is a law called the Adoptions and Safe Families Act that was signed into law 1993 by Bill Clinton. And it actually incentivizes the states to speed up the adoption process by giving them federal funding. So while they were offering my mom $670 a month per child, the state is getting anywhere between $2,000 to $8,000 per child per month that is placed in foster care and eventually adopted. So I'm like, that's sick, man. Like, why, why would you want people to adopt people's children when they have parents, they have family who is willing to take care of them, 
And then in my case, like I, I didn't do this. Like I was innocent and there is no due process. There are no constitutional protections under the law in family court, right? And I began to learn that family court is kind of a rogue court that in order for the states to get federal funding, they need to come up with some sort of parallel law or parallel code that will allow them to get the, the federal funding. So in California, it's called the Welfare Institutions Code. And yeah, section 300, 350 is where you'll find all the little loopholes about the funding that they can get for placing children in foster care or up for adoption. Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Happy Holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. You can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforumc.org. So it was crazy, right? And I'm learning all these things. I'm in those child abuse classes. There was about 30 of us in that child abuse class. And I think three of us got our kids back. Everyone else was adopted. We had termination of parental rights. I mean, we had babies that were taken from the delivery room and given to, to strangers. And one night, you know, somebody very close to me actually told me, Rachel, I was praying, and the word repent kept coming into my mind, repent. I'm like, okay, repent. I sort of took it in a way you're telling me I deserve this, right? Like, I need to repent. Then I remember Job, right? Sounds like Job's friends. <laughs> but I did go pray that night, and I said, okay, God, who sinned? Right. Me, my parents, my grandparents, the generational, you know, what what is going on? And again, Holy Spirit that night, nothing, nobody, nobody sinned. This is just the fallen world we live in. And what you're witnessing right now is the destruction of the family. You know, this is what the devil has been trying to do from day one is to destroy the family. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, husband against wife, brother against brother. But what you're witnessing right now, what you're going through right now is not going to be in vain. I'm going to use your story. You are going to help other families. You're going to bring light to this. So from that moment on, you know, my perspective completely shifted. In that child abuse class, I, I no longer was the victim in this scenario. You know, I felt like I was the light, like I was there to encourage people, like I was there to learn. And ultimately, I had to surrender to God 
surrender my children, my family, like, you know, even if I did go to jail, my God, if there's somebody in there who needs to hear the gospel, who needs to hear from me, here I am, right? And I, in some way, my children were with their father, so I wasn't really that worried in that sense. I'm one of the lucky ones. I know so many whose children get absolutely destroyed and siblings get separated. They tell so many lies to the children, right? And to the foster families. I'm like, can you imagine what a potential foster family would have heard from a social worker regarding me, right? Say this infant, this little tiny baby got his head smashed by this abusive mom. Will you please help this baby and his brother? And if you're a regular person, of course, you'll be like, you know, keep this evil woman away from these kids. And there's no vetting process. There's no way that the foster family is going to talk to me. There's no way I'm going to talk to them. Everything is secret, right? Everything is sealed under the guise of privacy or protecting the minors. But it's really them covering their own butts, right? I mean, and in that court report, when I was reading things, you know, one of the first things that I saw was the police, the police report and his statement was that the mother did not seem very empathetic towards her son. The mother was not exhibiting the normal behaviors of a grieving mother. And just little attacks on my character. And I'm thinking, yeah, I was trying to hold myself together. You know, you told me you were there to help me. And I was in shock, you know. And then if it was the other way around, if I was hysterically crying, they were going to say I'm not emotionally stable to take care of a child. You know, so a parent really can't win in this system. It's really, really sad. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I was going to say, too, it seems like in, in a lot of these instances of of corruption that's going on, it always comes back to money, oftentimes, right? And, you know, and it, that, that goes for a lot of the stuff that we're seeing with a lot of the COVID-19 numbers. There's the incentives for uh, for having a, a test positive. Uh, the, you know, in, in a lot of different instances. Here, though, what I'm wondering is, like with COVID-19, I get the incentive because the hospital, to a certain degree, they're raising money there. You know, they it, they can profit off of it and things like that. How does CP what, – what's the motivation for CPS, since they are a government agency, to be getting all of these incentives if people are just having their salaries? And it's not like they're getting like a bonus every time they're, uh, they're putting somebody in. Or are they? They do. They do get bonuses. <laughs> they do get bonuses for the number of adoptions that they place. And if they don't have enough children in the system, then the federal funding gets cut, right? So they have to constantly keep having this rotating supply, basically, of children within the system so that the funding doesn't get cut and they don't lose their jobs, that they don't have layoffs and, you know, cutoffs and a bunch of different things. So, yeah, they do get bonuses. I've heard from social workers who have left the department saying that, you know, you're considered lazy if you give the children back to their parents. You know, if you're working towards reunification, you're lazy. And if you do all the work, all the steps, all the stuff for termination of parental rights to get them adopted, then you're a hero within the agency, right? So it's a really twisted culture <laughs> inside the agency. And, you know, after I did get my kids back, after I did get my life semi-normal, back to normal, I couldn't let it go. Like, you know, I have, I know too much right now. And all these other people, people that are suffering in silence. They do not have the same resources I do, don't have the same education I do, the same credibility that I do. So I contacted a civil rights attorney and took me about three months of bugging him and bugging him until I finally got a hold of him. 
He looked over my case and he took it. So we filed the petition, the complaint in April of 2016. Yeah, April of 2016. And we were all set for trial of June 2019. So we had about two years worth of discovery and depositions. And, you know, that's when things really were brought to light. I got all those files. It came like a bunch of stuff redacted. My attorney had to keep making motions. And we found out they gave my son 13 vaccinations without our consent, without a court order. They forced my son through a full skeletal survey, no consent, no court order. They gave him an anal wink test, which is for sexual abuse when there weren't even any allegations of sexual abuse. We got the social worker's text messages between her, her supervisor and the police officers that night of the interview. And before they even got to the hospital, they had already made up their minds that it was me. There was a text exchange between the social worker and her supervisor. You know, she tells her supervisor, I'm on my way to the hospital right now. There's an infant with a cranial fracture. Infant was with a nanny, per mom. And the supervisor re replies back, OMG, you think it was the nanny? Social worker replies, no, think mom. This is before they ever talked to me. And the detectives, when the police officer told me, you know, can you wait for the detectives? They're on their way. They had already told them to seize the children without a warrant. They had already signed the, what they call the blue slips. Everything was done before they spoke to me, before we got in front of a judge, before anything. Right. And the nanny, what happened to the nanny? They spoke to the nanny once the day after they had already seized my children, after they'd already done all these medical examinations on my son. And she told them that the baby was perfectly fine when she left the house. And that was that. They believed her and they never said anything else to her again. So, you know, during the depositions, my attorney established, clearly established that they had been trained, that they knew they should have gotten a warrant, that they knew what the definitions of exigent circumstances were or imminent danger, that they knew all these definitions. And then, okay, so why didn't you get a warrant? Then they start pointing fingers at each other, right? Well, the police officer told me to do this. Well, the social worker is the expert and she agreed. And, you know, they just keep pointing back and forth. And did you think the mother did this? No. Then why does your text message say this? Well, at the time, you know, this is the information I had. You know, they just kept going around circling the drain. And I think after a period of time, they knew that they were not looking very good. So we had the mediation. And that was really hard. You had the mediation going back and forth, back and forth. And I told my attorney, I don't care if I win $1 at trial. I just want these people to be held accountable. I want a jury to see these people. I want a judge to see these people. I want them to be cross-examined. I mean, I want them to be put through the ringer like what they put us through. Right? And my attorney says, you know, I understand. Totally understand. And it's not to say that your case doesn't have any merit. It absolutely has merit. And I do think you'll win. But even if you win, they're going to appeal it. And we are back to square one. We're going to have to do all the depositions all over again. You're going to be spending another $100,000 again. It's going to be like a five-year process. So not to mention the financial, but the emotional toll that this is going to take on you and your family. So as your, your attorney, I advise you today, you know, that if they give you a certain amount of money, we had a figure in mind that you take the money and run. So we were going back and forth, back and forth. They finally came back with a 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49, 1.49,
which was about $10,000 less than what we had initially thought. You know, and my husband are there, and we're like, should we do it? I'm like, it's $10,000. Like, no, don't be stupid. But at the same time, within principle, you're like, I don't want, you know, I want the trial. I want these people to go to trial. But ultimately, we decided to not go to trial and accepted the settlement for 1.49. I didn't get out of bed for probably three days after that. You know, I was just laying down. I felt like a sellout. And my attorney's like, well, you know, if everybody leaves happy, then somebody got screwed. He's like, you know, that's the sign of a good settlement or a good resolution. Somebody always leaves pissed off. Everybody leaves pissed off. (laughs) So, you know, gave us a clean slate financially to be able to to pay off all our debts because during this whole thing, we probably had around $250,000 worth of debt. My husband and I were running our own business at that point, which we had to close because my husband was now taking care of a newborn who had brain surgery and a toddler. So it really turned everything upside down. But again, you know, we're one of the lucky ones that had the financial means, that had the education, that had a way out. So many families destroyed. I mean, you can't afford all the stuff that they, all the loopholes and all the things that they make you jump through. You know, and if you don't have money, then you're, you're screwed. I mean, unfortunately you are. And, you know, within the Christian community, within the church, we always hear about foster care. And as if it's, you know, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, you know, let's get some foster care training. Let's help these families. Let's put the backpacks together. Let's donate. Let's do this. Let's do that. And then here I am in this scenario, and I'm like, nobody ever asked the critical question, like, should these children have been placed in foster care to begin with, right? And people don't realize, like I didn't realize, you know, there is no constitution in family family court. Like, what the heck? Like, what other law is there? Constitution is supposed to be the law of the land. But people don't realize that it is not like that in family court, okay? And in foster care and CPS, they just take your children. They can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. That's their little motto, right? And who defines that, right? What's in the best interest of the child? They can define it however the heck they want it to. And even the statistics, you know, Secretary Pompeo came out recently with the human trafficking report that like 67% of the children from human trafficking were from foster care were found in state custody when they were rescued. And like 87% of the cases in foster care are due to neglect. So what's neglect? Neglect can mean your kid has a hole in his shoe, your kid hasn't taken a shower in two days, or you have a, a sink full of piled up dishes, or your house is untidy. I mean, it can mean anything they want. Right? And a lot of times neglect looks like poverty, unfortunately. So, you know, from the Christian community, I've been speaking about it. I've been telling people at the church, please, you know, take it with a grain of salt when a foster care agency or if you're fostering a child, you know, the Bible tells us to be a father to the fatherless, right? And to help the orphan and the widow. And these children are not fatherless. These children have families. These children have brothers and sisters. These children have grandparents, uncles, aunts. You know, they have families that are willing to take them. But even that, the way the system is set up, if they are placed with family, they don't get as much money as if they're placed with strangers. So they have no incentive whatsoever to try to keep these families together. It's all about the money. 
So if you really want to help children or help a family in need, you know, then do it individually, right? Do it in your own time. Offer your time. Offer your resources. You know, cook a home-cooked meal for this poor single mom who's juggling around three kids and a job, right? Give them a Target gift card and go buy yourself some new shoes. Go buy yourself some new clothes. You know, don't call CPS because the minute you get the government involved, you lose all control of the situation. And chances are those kids will never see their family again. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it seems like, like in, in the, the way you're describing it, it's like we, we have a legalized human trafficking ring within, within the government. And, you know, and, you know, and there's, there's legitimately no recourse to this, which again is really scary. It's all, it's almost like you're dealing with the mob. It's almost like you're dealing with the mafia. It, it's a whole different ball game without, with it, where it seems like there are no checks and balances. There, there are no legal recourses. So then the question is, what do we do about it? Be- because you know it's 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 this big enterprise that's gotten out of control. How do how do we bring this back in? Yeah, I mean it's crazy. Most of our legislators, most of our senators, are now our representatives don't want to touch this with a six foot pole, right? I mean, I don't know if you Google Nancy Schaefer. I don't know if you've heard of her, but I've she heard was the a name, senator. Yeah. yeah, she was a senator in Georgia. Or yeah, in Georgia, and she tried to expose the system, and she ended up dead along with her husband there was another senator in arkansas linda collins smith who was also trying to expose this and she also ended up dead so i mean it is it's the mafia like you said it's the mafia there's so much money involved right this all falls under the umbrella of health and human services and there's just no like no checks and balances they can do whatever the heck they want with the money i mean i've tried writing the legislators i've tried president trump i mean anybody it has to come since it's federal, it's federal money, it has to come from the top, right? Something needs to be done to like defund this bill, repeal this bill, the Adoptions and Safe Families Act. And again, like if a parent is really abusing their child, that is criminal, right? That will go to federal court and they will have their day in court where there will be actual due process. They will, you know, present the evidence. They will be cross-examined. That all happens in federal court. Neglect, you know, that, that doesn't fall under anything under the law. So you go to this kangaroo court where there is no due process. There's nothing to do. So for now, I just think it's creating the awareness campaign, you know, letting people know that this is what happens. If CPS ever comes knocking on your door, first thing, no warrant, no entry, right? They must have that warrant. Like at the time when they showed up at my mom's house, two o'clock in the morning, we didn't know, didn't know our rights, didn't know what was going on. So, you know, no warrant, no entry. You kindly tell them, you know, no, (laughs) You know, can we come in? Can we just see if your children are okay? No, do not let them in. Do not believe them. Okay, do not believe their little psychological tricks because they tried it with me too. Well, you know, if you were a caring mother, we'd think you want to cooperate with us and cooperate with the investigation. And you say, I will cooperate with the investigation with my attorney present. Thank you. Yeah. Secondly, get an attorney, right? Like the story I told you of the 18-year-old. You know, the public defenders, unfortunately, all work for the same system. Right. So they don't want to piss off the judge. They don't want to piss off the the social workers. They all colleagues. They work together. So if you have to sell your car, you know, mortgage your house, beg your family, get a private attorney because, yeah, they're the only ones who are really going to fight for you. And what else? Secondly or thirdly, I say shut up and shut up now because anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, even though they don't read you your Miranda rights. It is. 
They will. They will say anything you say. They will twist it. So, you know, don't say more than what you're asked to the social workers. And cooperate in a way. You know, I know you're mad. I know it's not fair. Our instinct as parents, you know, as mama bears is to fight and to stand up. But now is not the time, right? Because they have your children's lives in their hands. And they have all the power. Unfortunately, they have all the power. They can be very vindictive. You know, I've seen it through those child abuse classes and through people who contact me that, you know, they got in a fight with a social worker or an ex tells the social worker something and then the social worker takes that and runs with it and goes to the judge and says bad things about you, you know, so just don't. Big picture in mind is that your children, right? This is about your children. And that's all that I really cared about. I'm like, I don't care what you do with me. You know, put me through the ringer. I had to do psychiatric evaluations. I did polygraphs. I did everything you can imagine. Even though I knew I was innocent, even though I could technically fight and say, no, I didn't do this. I'm not going to do it. That's not the right strategy in family court. Okay, so just do it. And hopefully, you know, you get your children back. And then once you get your children back, then we can fight and do the civil suits because that's really the only way we can make them pay back is hurt them in their pocket. You know, we don't have a perfect justice system. You know, ideally they would go to jail or they would lose their jobs. But for now, that's not the way it's set up. So we can hurt them in their pocketbook. And in my civil suits, one of the terms that we put in the settlement was for policy changes. You know, so we will settle as long as one of the things was the hospital that gave my son the 13 vaccinations, the skeletal survey, and the anal wink test. You know, they did all that without a court order, without consent. The social worker gave them what they call a general order, which was basically rubber stamped by a judge in 2008. Okay, this happened in 2015. And they gave this order to the doctor, and the doctor performed whatever they told them to do. So in our settlement, okay, no more general orders. You know, the hospital is not allowed to take general orders. They must have a specific order signed on that day with specific examinations and why they have to do these specific examinations. Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Happy Holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com-spiritpark. So, you know, the more we sue them and the more these things get put into place, I think it will make a difference. At least it's a start. But ultimately, you know, I think it does need to come from the federal level if you really want to see some kind of improvement. Yeah. Now, now is, it, is, this, is this relegated to more, more liberal states? Because California, like I, I always say, it's communist California. You know, it's, it's corrupt. It's, it's, it's insane. But is this is this more prevalent in places like California, New York, a lot of these more liberal places, or is this 
anywhere and everywhere. Everywhere. Unfortunately, it's everywhere because, again, it's federal, right? It's federal funding. So the states will do whatever the heck they, they, they can to get money, right? Everybody wants more money. And I think Arizona is actually one of the worst yeah. when it comes to this. Yeah, and, and that that's interesting too, you know, and, and, I, and I feel like, you know, because I, I grew up in Arizona and I feel like, you know, I would always hear – stories or rumblings or you know things like that going on but but i think i think the thing is is that that what we need to figure out is number one obviously like you were saying we we need more awareness we need people to understand but then it seems like there's got to be something tangible that that peop that the public can do to actually bring about change and i think that 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 seems like that's the concerning thing is if we can't get our legislators to actually do anything what the heck can we actually do here yeah, uh, good question. I'm still trying to figure that out, too. Like, I'm still trying to figure out who the heck controls family court. Like, it's so complicated. You know, if you Google the things and if you Google the statutes and the laws and everything is so laced together that it's really hard to pinpoint who is in charge of this. There, yeah, it's nearly impossible to figure it out. So, like I said, all I know is the money, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Follow the money. So I've written letters to President Trump. I've written to Melania. I've written to Secretary Pompeo. I've written to the vice president. I mean, I've written to them. There have been protests and marches at the Capitol Hill. You know, there's a foundation. There's many foundations that try to get this attention. But I don't know. I think as long as there's demand for adoption, you know, it's a supply and demand thing, just like a business or any commodity. You know, our children, unfortunately, have become commoditized. They have a bounty attached to their head which is sick. So I don't know, like people just need to stop maybe looking into foster care adoption or, you know, not to say that there aren't children that are in need of adoption, but even according to their own statistics, that's less than 10%. Less than 10% of the cases are physical abuse or sexual abuse. Everything else falls under neglect and the parents may be having drug problems or alcohol problems. Which, again, you know, of course, those parents need help, right? And taking their children away is not going to help them or the child. So my mom was offered $670 a month to take away my children, right? What if I did have drug problems? What if I was an alcoholic? Why not give me the $670 and send me to rehab? Or, you know, help a single mom pay her rent or whatever it is, right? The money is there. There's plenty of funds to help the biological parents. So why do they choose to not do so? Right. And again, I go back to the spiritual side, which is about the destruction of the family. You know, that's what the devil wants. We create broken humans. Right. From childhood until their adolescence. Then we don't know. I mean, of course, we know why. But, you know, people are like, oh, they end up in prostitution. They end up in drugs. They end up homeless. They end up, you know, jobless. Like, of course. No, you took them away from the one thing that they're supposed to trust. Right. And that bond that you have between child and mother, child, and father, that can't just be replaced, right, by, here you go, take this person and, you know, raise it. That's not how God intended it to be, and that's not how it's supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now, now you were talking about, like, the, the, the one main thing that we can do to really, you know, go after them, obviously, is awareness and getting getting the public aware of what's going on and things like that. So I know you're talking, obviously, talking a lot about this and doing everything you can, but what, what should the everyday person who maybe they haven't had the same kind of experience as you, what can the everyday person do to actually get involved and hope, hopefully make some change here? Yeah, write to your legislators. 
you know, write to your legislators, tell them to repeal ASFA. You know, that's the Adoptions and Safe Federal, the Adoptions and Safe Families Act, which was signed by Bill Clinton, which incentivizes the states to speed up the adoption process. So, yeah, write to your legislators, write to D.C., call them. I mean, I've done all that. And maybe, you know, if we get noisy enough, you know, liberals tend to be very noisy and they get the attention. So, you know, we need to start fighting, not be so nice anymore, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 that, and that, that's the thing, too, is like is it seems like for a lot of the for a lot of the uh, the lefties out there, a lot of times they're, they, you know, they're very unified. They've got strategies. They've got, you know, they they uh, make all the calls. They do all the protests. They do all that kind of stuff. I think to a certain degree, uh, conservatives and Christians oftentimes are splintered off and doing their own individual things. But when it comes to these kinds of things, we have to be unified if we're going to actually have a voice to bring about change. So that that's really important, I think. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So, if people want to uh, get more get more information, study up more on this, or just follow you and and what you're doing and things like that, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I have my own website, www.rachelbruno.com. Okay, and I will also be writing a book. I mean, I was supposed to come out this year, but then COVID. <laughs> so, you can follow me on my website to be the first one to know when the book comes out. You know, this story has a lot of details, so I will be writing a lot more about it in the book. I also have my Twitter account. I'm very active on Twitter. It's usually where I post my, my interviews and everything that I've done is on Twitter. I have my own Facebook page where I also post things on there. My email is rachel at rachelbruno.com. So, you know, most people who contact me and have been through this, they just want to feel human. You know, because this system really dehumanizes you. It makes you feel crazy. You know, I'm like, am I the crazy one here? Like, am I the only one seeing that this is wrong? And I'm like, no, you're not crazy. And I remember my attorney, when I was crying with him, I'm like, this, they can't just take away my kids. Like, I didn't do this, right? And he just held my hand and he said, I believe you. And that's all I needed, right? Is somebody to say, I believe you. You're not alone. You're not crazy. And I have people, I have a group of people dedicated to praying for these people, praying for these families. So if you just want to be put on a prayer list, let me know. Because we are actively praying and engaging for these families. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And again, I highly encourage everybody to, you know, you know, follow Rachel, uh, keep up on what's going on, but also get, get involved in some way. Cause again, this, this is one of those things that it's, it's an actual injustice. You know, there's a lot of talk about social justice and like all that kind of stuff. This is one of those things that it's, it's an actual legitimate, uh, thing that needs to be dealt with. So, but Rachel, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we could, uh, sit down and kind of go over this cause it's definitely something that needs to get out more. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And look forward to keeping in touch and seeing everybody. Definitely. Sounds good. And then everybody else as well, uh, if you guys can, uh, go over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. It really helps. Uh, and it'll also let you guys know every time we come out with a new episode. And then, uh, again, uh, we are in pre-orders for the book Church and State, How the Left Used the Church to Conquer America. Also, uh, if you guys are interested, we're also doing pre-orders for Pastor Sam Jones' new book, Five Steps to Kill a Nation and How to Stop the Bleeding. Uh, really deals with a lot of the current events, what's going on uh, from a scriptural standpoint. So definitely check that out at Gatekeepers Online com and we will see you guys next time
Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Happy Holidays from all of us at Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC.